Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement, and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Greg Kiesling. Greg is a veteran of the software wars, and now he's an unstoppable social entrepreneur. He's the founding chair of Canadians for Clean Prosperity and Not-for-Profit Advocating for Carbon Pricing. He's also an investor and board chair of Inmotive Inc., a Canadian startup developing an innovative two-speed transmission for electric vehicles. From 2004 to 2018, Greg was co-founder and board chair of Bullfrog Power, Canada's leading green energy provider and a catalyst for green energy, I would say, as well. He's also served in a variety of fundraising and board leadership roles for the groundbreaking Pathways to Education program. Earlier in his career, Greg was co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Citraca, formerly KL Group, which was Canada's largest self-financed software company when it was acquired in 2002. Greg received his Bachelor of Mathematics at the University of Waterloo in 1984. Greg Kiesling, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Rick. It's an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. I'm thrilled. Greg and I go back a long ways because uh, as uh, editor at Profit Magazine, I covered uh, much of uh, some of his work back in the 90s, so I'm looking forward to this chat. But before we get started, Greg, let me just ask you, what are the top learnings or pieces of advice that uh, that you'd hope that entrepreneurs will take away from our conversation today? Well, I'm hoping uh, folks will learn something about, uh, well, maybe share some of the challenges of being an entrepreneur, uh, maybe pick up some of the learnings and uh, that I've had over the years that I can share and um, and have fun. Hopefully, we'll have a fun conversation that's <laughs> motivating and, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. Fun is important to you, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, way back in the day at Citraca, it was uh, we considered fun to be a core value. Not so much in that uh, it was more like a core metric. Like if we weren't having fun, it was kind of a signal that something was wrong. And um, you know, usually you could tell something's wrong because you're not having fun before you could really figure out what was wrong. So it was kind of a leading indicator. And 
yeah, so I think it, you should be having fun. People should be who are working together healthily are usually having fun. There's some laughs. And uh, yeah, so hopefully we'll have fun today. All right. That, that, that's that's very interesting and a great start. Thanks so much. So let's go back to the Satraka days. And, and it, it's, a, it's a long time ago now, I guess 25 or 30 years ago, um, when, when, when you started there. Um, and the technology landscape was very different. But back then, tech startups were, 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 were still pretty new. We were still trying to get our heads around them at, at Profit Magazine. And I think that, that from a cultural point of view and, 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 and a stylistic point of view, your entrepreneurial journey back then wasn't that much different than the, 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 the tech entrepreneurs today, whether they're involved in e-commerce or artificial intelligence or whatever the technology is, uh, or, or SaaS, which you were sort of a precursor of the SaaS movement, I think, in a way. Um, so tell us the about Satraka and the unique GUI problem that you were trying to solve back then. <laughs> the GUI problem. Yeah, well, yeah, so I guess I would just preface it by saying, you know, I, I was very lucky uh, to have a job before I quit my job and became an entrepreneur and took the plunge. I worked for a company called Sun Microsystems between, uh, this is going to sound ancient, between 1986 <laughs> and 1989. And uh, people have to remember, this is pre-internet. It's actually um, just after the uh, you know, early days of the PC. Um, and uh, Sun was a bit like the Apple of today. Like They were the hot Silicon Valley company Although, you know, it wasn't mainstream like today. It wasn't for consumers. It was for uh, mostly engineers and professionals who were buying these Sun workstations, which had big screens. And, and for the first time ever, using windowing systems and graphical user interfaces. And uh, just before... So so you're saying that they were like Apple because they were much cooler machines than IBM's and... and yeah, more, they were and, cool. And, and, and more, more graphical and certainly more powerful. More powerful, more graphical, and 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 it, they were the cool upstart company. Sun was like the startup in the era of, like the first wave of big computing companies like IBM and Digital, and they you know made big, expensive, kind of boring computers that were way in hindsight way overpriced. And uh, Sun was the upstart that nobody had heard of originally, but it was kind of quickly taking over by doing a bunch of things differently, including having a, a much more dynamic culture, a much more of a meritocratic culture where, um, you know, they, they weren't inheriting the old sort of business practices of the 50s and 60s. And so um, being a Canadian in Toronto, working for the Sun Microsystems branch in Canada, but spending probably, I don't know, maybe a sixth of my time in Silicon Valley um, and learning, you know, being inside this sort of Silicon Valley hotshot company uh, was really informative. It really helped, you know, us, me see a different way of managing a company and, and um, motivating people and, and, you know, being audacious, going after big goals and, and taking risks and, um, you know, and I think that's, as you were saying earlier, that's sort of become a bit the norm now in tech. Like, you know, every AI startup in Canada would be doing all those things naturally today. It's just become the, the culture in technology. But it was, 
in the 90s, it was unique. Right. And so tell me about the niche that, that you were in, because I am I know I can't possibly explain it. <laughs> so, uh, well, I'm, maybe the listeners can imagine like when the windowing systems first came up before that, you know, we had little terminals, ASCII terminals, and you type letters on a screen and the little green boxes would light up across the screen. All flashbacks. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> yes. So, um, uh, so when we first had these uh, windowing systems with multiple windows and a bitmapped screen, and, it, and you can start imagining as a programmer, you would want to use that to advance the user interface of whatever your program was. So a lot of the early adopters of these engineering workstations were uh, financial traders who were, you know, trading things on Wall Street and they wanted custom trading systems. And so we imagined that one of the things they'd want would be various types of charts and graphs and being able to display data from their proprietary systems in charts and graphs in their user interface and maybe allow the user to click on a chart or graph or element in a pie chart or a bar in a bar graph or whatever and have that then you know trigger the next thing that's displayed and uh so we on a bit of a hope and a prayer decided we would build these user interface components that uh we would sell to other programmers who would then embed them in their programs on these systems and that's exactly what we did and it, it uh long story but it turned out quite well we were able to uh do well in that initial charting space. And then we got into 3D graphics and other kinds of user interface components and then kept branching into adjacent spaces, ultimately ending up in the Java space and then Java performance tuning uh, uh, software and then finally uh, Java performance management software. So over the course of sort of 13 years, we, we evolved into all these different spaces. Right. So, so I took a trip to the past. I, I, uh, back in that era, 1997-98, I wrote a book called Secrets of Success from Canada's Fastest Growing Companies based on the work that we were doing at Profit Magazine studying the fastest growing companies in Canada. Satraka was one of them, finishing very high up there on our uh, five-year growth rate chart. And uh, I gave your company, Satraka, uh, a whole chapter to, to sort of at the end of the book to, because I was trying to sum up the experience of working at a contemporary growth company. So you may remember that I came in and embedded myself for several days and attended meetings and interviewed all kinds of people there and uh, had a great time. Um, as rereading the chapter, because, you know, the brain starts getting fuzzy after some time, I was struck by a couple of things. Um, you you, you were growing, you were constantly reinventing yourselves. You were constantly coming up with new products and, and, and new tweaks to the, 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 the systems you were selling. Um, and you were remarkably profitable, certainly in, 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 in those early years. And I think the most important thing was your ability as the CEO to keep hiring really smart people, experienced people who might not have thought they wanted to work for such a young upstart company because they had a lot of experience, but you knew that you weren't going to be small for long. So tell us a little bit about your 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 recruiting strategies back then. Because I think it's something a lot of entrepreneurs can learn from even today. Well, yeah, I, I think that um, 
we tried to we well you're right we were profitable early on which was uh for us a necess- a necessary <laughs> condition we're talking because, 30% uh, margins people <laughs> well we had very healthy margins and we were growing quickly and we were able to i mean it sounds simplistic but we basically at the end of each quarter look at uh, you know, how much profit we'd had in, in the previous quarter and go, okay, well, we'll assume we'll do at least that well next quarter. So we'll, how many people can we hire, you know, to spend that additional profit in this next quarter? And, uh, you know, it's, oh, we can hire two engineers, you know, so let's go and hire two more engineers. And a few quarters later, it would be, well, we can hire, you know, seven engineers and a marketing person. You know? <laughs> and uh, uh, so we ended up uh, basically self-financing. And I say a necessary condition because in the you know, early, mid-90s, there was no venture capital industry for our kind of company, and certainly not in Canada at the, the way there is today. So, um, so uh, being profitable, luckily we were in a space that allowed us to be profitable quickly, and we ran the business that way. Um, and recruiting people, to get to your question, it, it, yes, we, were, we tried really hard to recruit uh, really great people. And, you know, part of it was making sure they would fit into our culture. So it was, you know, we would, we would obviously not everybody would fit in. So we try to, uh, if somebody wasn't a good fit, try to figure that out quickly. Um, and we would, one of the things that we did, which may be a little, uh, unusual sounding, but we would pay a little bit more than, uh, our competitors, now, our competitors in those days for software engineers, top software talent was typically the banks or the finance industry. And, um, you know, they had much more strict rules about how much they'd pay. And so we'd kind of try to find who were the stars, who were the people that were really high performers and, and just pay more for that. And, uh, and that was, I think then we also, we just tried to make Satraka a fun place to work. So it was just very it was just a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. We had a lot of uh, fun little events and um, and uh, tried to communicate really clearly with everybody so people knew what was going on. We had, you know, every quarter we'd have like an open all-company, all-hands meeting where everybody could ask any question they wanted. Um, and, uh, you know, as we got bigger, we hired you know, we started to hire a little bit more HR and try to measure how we were doing and make sure that we were doing those things well. Um, and it, I think uh, in the end, it bore out. Was, you know, some really good friendships last till today from, you know, folks that we all got to know each other during those days. Yeah, that, that, that's very cool. Can, can, you ma- can you make a case that paying more to hire the stars uh, is a sustainable strategy? Yeah, and I think I think you should. I think entrepreneurs, no matter what field you're in, you should think hard about that. Because the natural, you know, the natural thing, if you're a little startup with no money, is to pay people as little as possible. <laughs> I know that feeling, and um, the uh, and uh, you know, I think you still want to always get good value when you're hiring. But I just think you know, sometimes like a, a the top performers in any field are just going to be maybe multiples of times better than the average performer. And certainly that's true in a lot of technical fields, particularly I know in software development, the, you know, the top performers are, are, are multiples. I mean, this is measured. I mean, they're 10 times more productive than an average performer. And, you know, there's this whole, um, in software in particular, there's this whole, uh, you know, 
mythology around uh, man months. You know, IBM used to quote big projects in man months. <laughs> you know, they'd say, it sounds so uh, that uh, does, sexist it, to say it, it today. It, but It uh, does. It sounds so old-fashioned, but let's go with it. But that's what they would do. And they'd say, you know, it would take X, they would look at a big project and say, okay, this is going to take, you know, 2,000 man months. And and so we can either, you know, and the implication was, well, you can have, you know, one person for 2,000 months or a thousand people for two months and you're going to have the project done. And of course it doesn't work that way. You know, uh, the more communication you need between a group to coordinate a large group slows everything down. And so having a small team of high performers who work very collaboratively, uh, will always uh, perform, uh, you know, a big team with requires a lot of communication. So if you can have fewer people who high perform higher and, and of course that you're paying the more compensating the more uh that's definitely a a better combination fantastic i i want to move on to your social entrepreneurship career because uh, you've done so many uh impactful things but i just got to ask you to just tell us a little bit about the the the, the sale of sutraka um to sutraka wasn't it <laughs> um um or sorry a quest software a quest yeah. that was it right yeah yeah um was that something you were looking for? I uh, was it the answer to your prayers? Uh, how did that come about? Well, well, it was um, it was one of a number of possibilities that we were working through. So, I, I guess another entrepreneurial uh, <laughs> uh, fact of life is you, or even a CEO of any company, has to constantly be uh, having multiple futures in their mind. So you're you're often working towards multiple pathways you don't know which one's going to work out you know in our case uh in you know around 2000 we didn't know we knew that uh we needed to move into higher value software spaces so instead of selling tools to programmers we wanted to sell solutions to the entire company like uh more like an enterprise type solution and and we knew that to do that, we would need a different kind of sales force. So instead of sort of a telephone sales force we had based in Toronto and in Europe, and we had agents uh, around the world, but uh, we knew we would have to go to a field sales force, which requires, you know, real people, uh, you know, working and taking, you know, visiting customers on site around the world. And that that was going to take many millions of dollars to create. Right. Um, so we we started off on a process of uh, you know hiring a banker and looking to raise that kind of money from a, you know a, a tier one venture capital organization and and at the same time as we were running that process it's an easy time to also test and see if if uh, there's acquisition interest in us so we kind of ran both processes in parallel and um you know it's difficult i can tell you as a as a management team or ceo to kind of know well we might go this way might go that way or neither might work out you you have to deal with all of those eventualities in your planning and um but in the end uh we were uh very fortunate and had uh, sort of both of those opportunities come to the fore at the same moment which was very lucky <laughs> sounds you like know. a movie <laughs> yes it was it felt like a movie um because we had uh, a very serious offer from Quest Software, and at the same time we had, uh, I, I, you know, we'd finished a VC process and ended up with very good terms from one of the top VCs, and and so we had that choice, and uh, very fortunate to have that choice at that moment. Um, 
And in the end, uh, after you know discussion with some of the senior team, we decided that the right move was to sell to Quest, and uh, and that's what we did. And Sutraka, does it still continue? Well, Quest has gone through uh, over the. I mean, this all happened, uh, you know, almost in the last ago, century. <laughs> <laughs> so technically, uh, it was the twenty first, but we were really weren't barely, ready for it yet. Yeah. Uh, Barely into the 21st century. So, uh, yes, Quest has gone through many changes since then. But um, uh, but f- I would say for the first sort of 10 years of the acquisition, uh, the, the engineering team uh, really flourished in the acquisition and ended up uh, uh, being a key part of Quest Software, as, and, they, which, and they helped manage global software development teams around the world. So, uh, but I'm not, Quest was then acquired by... I think uh, Dell, and then went, you know, and then oh, they went boy. private again, and lots and lots of changes have gone on since then. So I'm not quite sure where it's at. Right. Twenty, almost twenty years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I guess the sale marked a change for you because uh, you sort of stepped away from the software space and uh, and got into um, social entrepreneurship, got into uh, um, climate related ventures. What was going on? Yeah, well, before we sold, I, you know, I'd always be lamenting that I had no time to spend any time on anything else, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs will kind of identify with that. I, so I did make a list. I had time to make a little list of some of the things I wanted to do if I ever had time again. So after selling and having some time, I uh, I started to do some of the things on the list, which um, included uh, reading a lot more, reading some books about the big issues of the day. And, and, uh, I think at that time, that's when I, so this is 2002, 2003, I started to really understand climate change and how, uh, how kind of a tough problem it was. Like it, you know, it's, it's not a really technical problem. It's more like, a. uh, how we've set up our society problem, how we run everything, all the incentives that are built into all of our day-to-day activity. Um, so really, so really it's a tough an, problem. So you're, you, you guys were good at finding bugs in the system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's a and bug it in a, the system. It, yeah, yeah it's, that's a good way of putting it. It is a bug, in, particularly climate change. You know, So the fact that you know every time... Like you're, you're all, you know, like to do things that use energy and use carbon fuel energy, hydrocarbons. And, and, you know, we know that hydrocarbons cost something, like we pay something at the pump or we pay something for our natural gas for our home, but we aren't actually paying the full cost. And that's a bug in the system. And I started to, I didn't have that maybe quite as clearly formulated in 2002, but I knew that, I knew that green energy cost more than non-green energy and and uh but i knew that some people would be willing to pay more for it and i kind of thought it'd be good to expose that you know that product to the market that there you know there should be a a way to be able to so in specific case of what i went on to do next was to start bullfrog power which you know allowed uh, its customers to pay a little bit more, but have as much green energy as they were using in their house or their business uh, put onto their local grid. And so um, it was kind of a it was kind of a way to start to identify that there is this 
difference that green energy costs more. And so what do you want to do? Do you want to, which one do you want to buy? And, um, uh, yeah, so I guess a few years after selling Satraka, uh, I co-founded, uh, Bullfrog Power with Tom Heintzman and, uh, I didn't want to be CEO anymore <laughs> and I enjoyed having a little bit of that free time. And so, uh, you know, but I ended, I ended up being chairman and working really hard alongside Tom and the team to, to build Bullfrog Power up. Right. I, I was thinking when I was reading about your Satraka days that that was sort of a software as a surface service because you were supplying, you were supplying people with components, but it was software and saving them time, uh, making their own. So to me that. I, I guess you you made, you made a one-time sale instead of renting it out. So maybe it wasn't technically SaaS. But Bullfrog, to me, that's like very early crowdfunding. You're saying, help us develop this new product, green energy. Help us, uh, you know, be part of the development of it by helping subsidize the extra cost of it. And we will get it to the point where it's faster that it will become a commercial pro product. And now we know that solar has the potential to be the cheapest energy source mankind has ever had. So, again, a technology model, which uh, you seem to have pioneered, helped with uh, the development of Bullfrog. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, I mean, our, our customers were... Uh, Bullfrog customers were absolutely helping to get new renewable projects uh, funded and built, and and that helps drive the cost down. Right. Yeah. I think it was both in individuals and organizations. Right. I mean, it wasn't one or yes. the other. Right. It was actually that was a, one of the surprises to me when we first started. I kind of thought that uh, our our initial the bulk of our sales would be to individuals. As a percentage of our total, you know, megawatt hours would be to individuals and and businesses would come later. But actually, um, it turned out the other way around. The bulk of our megawatt hour sales, you know, were to a small number of large customers. Uh, and, you know, Royal Bank was with us right on day one, uh, helping to, you know, be a customer on day one with Bullfrog powering a few of their branches. And um and as we grew, uh, it was really the corporate sales that ended up uh, being the ones that uh, made Bullfrog successful. Although, it, 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 not to diminish individual homeowners, because that's really what made the brand um, important at the mm -hmm. sort of retail level. And I'm sure it had a lot to do with the reason why the big corporates were supporting it. I remember when the Financial Post criticized Bullfrog as being a company for people who think that they don't pay enough for power already. Um, what do you think was the calculation from your from those business customers who supported you? Why were they willingly paying a premium for, for green energy? Well, I think that a lot of, I mean, it would vary by customer. And, and, and it's interesting how, you know, uh, it continues to this day and, and um, big corporate customers are willing to pay more for green energy. Part, partly it's, it's transitioning. You, you're seeing large companies now uh, more than ever before, especially in the last two, three years, are really f realizing that they have to uh, manage their carbon footprint and figure out how to reduce it. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's been a wonderful shift uh, 
to see this thinking about, especially net zero by 2050, people are going, oh, okay, what does that mean? How do we get there? Are we on that trajectory? Uh, there's a lot more uh, accountability being built into financial disclosure that's either here now or will be coming in the next little while where, you know, big corporations, publicly traded companies will need to disclose their their um, their carbon footprint. And what what's the trend on it? Are they becoming more efficient uh, with their carbon expenditures as they grow their businesses? Um, so I think I think. You know, the, both of our customers are kind of early adopters of that. They want to they want to start figuring that out and start to be reducing their emissions and and be setting an example and be seen to be doing it. And um, that's all good corporate leadership. Um, yeah, so I think that's why. Right. There are so many um, opportunities as we move towards a greener environment, because so many things have to shift. As you said, um, you know, our whole infrastructure is biased towards fossil fuels and other, uh, other wasteful um, paradigms. What, tell me some of the other opportunities that you've seen or possibly even been involved in as we go through this shift to try and develop a much more, much more sustainable lifestyles and institutions and modes of transportation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, we're, we're politicians now from Canada to Britain are, and, and all over Europe and even Joe Biden are selling, you know, the, the climate change as an opportunity to create new jobs and, and build back better. So what are the opportunities that you see out there for, for entrepreneurs and, you know, based on some of your experience? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's the... It hasn't felt this way till recently, maybe, but it's a fantastic time now to be, uh, I think, a clean tech entrepreneur. It's been very tough for many years. There hasn't been uh, much interest. I think it's it has shifted recently as I think there has been a sea change in public opinion that we need to get serious about uh, reducing emissions and that technology and new ways of doing things are going to be a big part of it. And um, uh, it, you know, I don't know if it's going to be like the 90s and it was for software, but it kind of feels like the next 10 years are going to be for clean tech a bit like the 90s were for software. It's, you know, there's so many things that need to be improved and they all require new ways of thinking, new, uh, new investments, uh, risk taking, um, and there'll be a lot of losers and some winners and those winners will, you know, uh, be the normal thing we do in the 2030s and then there'll be a whole new series of that to the 2040s and 50s if yeah, i do a lot of thinking these days about at zero by 2050 and uh what does that really mean how how can we get there what and what what are the shifts that almost certainly have to happen and uh you know what we're going to do in the next 10 years is going to be i think quite different than what we're going to be doing in the next 20 years after that. So there's opportunities now and there's also laying the groundwork for even bigger opportunities later. Um, so yeah, you can pick anything, you know, farming, um, transportation, how we do manufacturing. A big issue is, uh, you know, the built environment, how, how our homes are, uh, how energy efficient they are, uh, how we, how we, how can we easily make existing homes more energy efficient is a huge problem. And people are going to solve that. Um, so it will involve software. It will involve new kinds of technology. 
Uh, a lot of it is, you know, how to, how to do things more efficiently. Think today about how inefficient, you know, a home retrofit is or building retrofit is. Um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of those costs can be squeezed out with technology. So I think there's, there's just opportunity everywhere, um, including how we, you know, our primary energy, energy production. So, you know, how, you know, we're going to be keep on using oil for a long time. And, and, but how we extract that oil, how we refine that oil can be done in increasingly efficient ways. So there's less emissions uh, upstream of the oil that we, that we are using. So uh, all of these areas um, are going to be improved with entrepreneurs tackling the, the problems and, and solving them. Right. Now you're involved in electric vehicles, which is of course a, a big hope for the the, the near-term future to make a big uh, difference in uh, in our carbon emissions. Um, can you t- tell us a little bit about what InMotive is doing, just to get an idea for the sort of opportunities that Greg Kiesling would get involved in? <laughs> yeah, well, it's probably the last opportunity that I'm going to get involved in from a for-profit point of view, because as your listeners have learned, I'm a really old guy now and I'm ready to retire. <laughs> but the um, Sounds like you have uh, a lot of energy, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so InMotive is um, it's just such a cool invention. I just fell in love with the invention when I first got exposed to it. It's a, a really a neat team of founders who uh, figured out a, a new way of making a mechanical transmission for moving mechanical energy, like in like between you know a motor and the wheels of a car, um, and uh, you know I'll try to describe it briefly, but if people want to learn more they can go to inmotive.com but uh there's um basically the idea is it's like a bike derailleur you know so imagine the derailleur at the back of your bicycle and you grind the chain from the small sprocket to the big sprocket um that won't work in a car because you can't grind chains over (laughs) sprockets without destroying them with the kinds of torques that go through a car but um so what if you could just change the size of the sprocket while the chain stays right where it is. And you could do that if you imagine breaking the sprocket into segments and the part of the sprocket that's not in touching the chain, you could swap out the smaller part and bring in a bigger part and keep turning around. And now the bigger part you know, moves along and you swap out the next smaller part, but in the next bigger part, basically change the size of the sprocket in place. That was the basic idea of the in-gear. Um, now, it needed a, a lot more than that to make it work, but it, uh, it's now been developed uh, to the point where we have it working in a test uh, electric vehicle. And it turns out that electric vehicles, you know, are single speed. They have, trans- they have gearboxes, but they're single speed typically uh, today. And that's just because existing transmission technologies are just too inefficient to put in an electric vehicle. Uh, and you can get away with having a, a single speed electric vehicle. But if you could have a, a very efficient two speed transmission in an electric vehicle, you would get better performance. You'd get about six or seven percent uh, more range uh, with the same amount of battery on a typical you know driving cycle. And if you spent most of your time on the highway, you'd get about fifteen percent more range. Um, and you get better acceleration and better top speed and better towing capability. And uh, so, InMotive has figured out how to how to actually do that. And and um, and so now, you know, it's in, we're in the stage of sort of bringing it to the electric vehicle industry and having discussions with 
OEMs and tier ones and uh, uh, getting it to the point where it's, you know, durable and proven enough to go into a production vehicle. So that's, that's my, uh, my business interest in the uh, electric vehicle space. And is your role there as uh, simply as an investor or are you more involved? Uh, yes, I'm a lead investor and the chairman. So I'm involved with, uh, and I'm, I guess I'm a, a little bit <laughs> more involved than the typical chairman. I, I spend uh, probably about an average of about a day or day and a half a week with the company. And, and, I, and I absolutely love it. We have a fabulous team, uh, incredibly uh, talented uh, team. And, uh, and, um, and it's, it's an exciting, exciting time. Now, you know, it's an, it's a early stage company. We're, you know, pre any significant revenue. So it's, uh, it's got all of those kind of challenges. And, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, there's something about it that's so novel and interesting, um, and has this potential to save, you know, a huge amount of the world's energy. Um, the, uh, you know, as the world increasingly electrifies, as we will by 2050, a lot more of our primary energy will be distributed through electricity. Uh, being able to make electric motors just more efficient, um, you know, not just in cars, but in industrial processes is uh, just a massive opportunity. So hopefully we can be a part of that. Fascinating. Are, are you like a... Have you always been a car guy? I think you were. I, I think of you as more of a bicycle guy. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of funny. Like I, I think back when you did that. Well, probably a little after you did that interview with us, I was a BMW M5 driver, and then I, as I sort of woke up to this climate change, you know, I, I switched to a Prius, and so <laughs> it was uh, probably the first person to go from an M5 to a Prius. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I've never really been a like a gearhead uh, type of, you know, I've done a lot of maintenance on motors in my youth, but nef- never really seriously. So no, this is all, the auto industry is something I've had to learn a lot about over the last few years. And it's uh, part of, actually, maybe that's another kind of learning maybe that I, I could pass on as a, the old entrepreneur is just, you know, I've always been curious. I'm always happy to learn about something new. And the automotive industry is, for those who don't know, very different than, a lot of other industries, it's it's um, got its you know very structured system of suppliers, and you know t- you hear about tier ones and tier twos, and how OEMs make decisions. It's got extremely long lead times for technology to get from you know the lab into the car, um, and you know it's it's actually been very I would say stagnant kind of industry for many years until recently with uh, the rise of tesla which is completely shaken that industry i think um, yeah well i mean what, what i can't remember what the numbers are but tesla on the stock market is now worth more than what the entire uh the, the next five car companies combined the entire sure. american industry whatever metric you yeah. want tesla's blown it apart yes it has and um uh, which is super exciting i, I think it, it, the industry needed a, a, a it's just moving too slow to electrification, and uh, Tesla proved that, uh, you know, has proven through the valuation of its company that that, that they were leaving something uh, way behind. And uh, yeah, Tesla right now is worth the valuation of GM and Ford put together times five. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it's crazy. So. This this goes to the heart of the innovation economy, and I feel I can talk with you about that. Um, 
Elon Musk has done amazing things there. He's, you know, I understand he's been active in a, in a few other sectors as well. Is there a reason why Tesla or SpaceX have, uh, have, have changed their industries so completely, yet other industries still remain laggard behind? What, what, why isn't innovation coming out, bursting out and, and, and growing geometrically um, in other industries as well? Well, well, I I wouldn't be quite so harsh on other industries. Like I, I think that there's there are a lot of entrepreneurially driven change going on in lots of industries. But it, Tesla kind of gets the headlines because basically because the valuations are so big. Uh, you know, SpaceX I believe is the most valuable private company now in the world, and um, and because you know they're so audacious, right? Like changing if the electric car industry had been if the if the automobile industry had been more aggressively moving to electrics you know tesla wouldn't have had an opportunity to succeed it's almost because they were going so slow uh that tesla kind of you know was able to pass them while they were asleep and and now of course they're all scrambling um quite seriously to catch up and i i actually uh just to stay on cars for a second i think you know we're going to see uh incredible number of new models of electric vehicles from GM and Volkswagen Hyundai uh, that um, are going to make it tough for Tesla. You know, what, what these big established car companies are good at doing is making lots of different models and distributing them and supporting them. And, and, uh, and, you know, I think by 2025 or so, you're going to see, you know, much more competitive electric car industry, but, um, I think it is going on in other spaces, but it comes down a lot to that. I mean, on but, Tesla, but but what makes Tesla a runaway winner? Like we haven't seen in most other industries. I mean, is is it anomaly or does it represent what is the potential? I would say it's a bit of. I think it's a bit of an anomaly. Like the valuations that Tesla's attracting are just seem a little uh, unsupportable. Um, uh, so I don't think you can, I don't think there's going to be a Tesla in every sector. Um, you know, uh, but, uh, but we don't need that. We just need, you know, successful, uh, agents of change in every sector to, that, you know, bring out the uh, solutions that, you know, reduce emissions profitably in, in those sectors. Um, right. I mean, those niche opportunities that have, that have always been the places where entrepreneurs have thrived as, as, as Citraka did, and as in motive, presumably will. Um, it's just that uh, the Tesla thing. I, I still don't quite understand why <laughs> why the, the the highway was so wide open for them to come in. But we but we, we we don't deal with that. One of the things that uh, we asked you about earlier, you know, something you'd like to talk about was uh, the 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 idea of the near worthlessness of ideas to an entrepreneur. I think that goes back to the heart of the startup experience. What would you like to tell us about the worthlessness of <laughs> ideas? Well, so I just think, I think it's helpful. I find it helpful anyway to, to just be a little cautious about, um, as an entrepreneur, just gravitating to a great idea. Um, you know, and, and often people, you know, come to me and they say, I've got this great idea. Uh, and so, you know, would you like to invest in the valuation of our company is a million dollars, you know, and all they've got is an idea. And I, I kind of go, you know, ideas are actually almost 
worthless. Like every, it, what really is worth something is an implementation of an idea. So, you know, taking your idea and actually getting it to the point where it's uh, ideally profitable, but even if it's not that, it's sort of working or it's proven or you've been able to prove out points of your of your idea, whether it's a you know new revenue model, new business plan, or, or new way of doing some process. You know, you have to be able to prove that there's uh, that the idea is going to be accepted in the way that you think it is. It is going to you know ultimately be profitable. And um, so, uh, you know, I I just I just kind of sometimes say that to people, you know, ideas are, are by themselves almost worthless. It's only when you turn your idea into something much more real and, and, you know, a business plan is the first part, but, you know, hopefully a business plan that's been tested where the key assumptions have been tested in some way, then it, then it becomes maybe worth something. So again, we, we have to live in parallel futures. We have to, you know, follow up on our ideas, but also be prepared to pivot it. <laughs> Yeah, multiple yeah. times probably. Yes, I think that's constantly changing. Being a, you know, uh, for sure, I think uh, you can write down a business plan, but it's it's going to need changing. And part part of what an entrepreneur should be doing all the time is just evaluating what what are those changes. Constantly thinking, okay, what have I got wrong? Uh, you know, don't believe too much in your own business plan your own hype or your own beliefs so just keep testing 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 what can i change to to make it better and you know whether you call that pivoting or whether you call it just <laughs> changing to make it better i don't know but uh you want to be always open to tweaking improving uh how you're planning to do things i want to go back and touch on carbon again because that is the major issue, really, uh, once COVID is behind us, uh, carb creating this, uh, uh, the getting to the net zero carbon future is so important. And entrepreneurs are going to have to do uh, a lot of this work. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts in terms of the mechanisms that, 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 that are in place now to try and get us there? And do you think there's any anything good about it and any opportunities lurking in it yeah so I, I think the main policy that you know creates the opportunities to for entrepreneurs and every everybody to jump in and and make money by reducing carbon emissions is a carbon price you know often that's called a carbon tax uh, but only by having like a steadily increasing price on carbon uh, does it become costly to continue to run business processes or household processes that emit a lot of carbon and thus become valuable for entrepreneurs to jump in and find ways to do those things uh, with less carbon. So if carbon emitting is free, then there's no value in uh, a technology that reduces carbon or a new business process, right? So we need there to be a price on it, not only so that it discourages carbon use, but so that it creates those opportunities for solutions. Uh, and and financial you know value in those solutions. So I think a, I like to say like a steadily rising carbon price has to do like the bulk of the heavy lifting of reducing our carbon emissions. It doesn't do everything, but it has to do the it has to provide that price signal to do the bulk of it. And then all these things, all these entrepreneurial activities make financial sense as the price goes up, right. and uh, there can be competition to uh, to uh, 
to figure out you know the winners and losers in doing that. That's a really interesting uh, perspective, and it helps me understand um, a bit better your uh, jump early on into into bullfrog. Um, what you were able to do was use sort of goodwill and what rare bit of foresight that individuals or organizations may actually have today to help jumpstart uh, sustainable renewable energy uh, alternatives to carbon. And but but what you're saying now, of course, is that we can't really get. Uh, the maximum potential change that's possible until we create the financial incentives. You were able to do it without financial incentives. You did it with financial penalties, but the 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 the, the, the progress is going to come from creating a space where we can innovate and create financial value. Exactly. So I think that you know the the lots of uh, companies and and people are willing to pay that premium, but you know a lot aren't, and so. Uh, it's only really by, you know, creating that you know, carbon price everywhere that we get the entire economy shifted over to, you know, reducing emissions. Um, so that's that's why it's it's so important. It's and unfortunately it's called the carbon tax because everybody, nobody likes taxes. Entrepreneurs don't like taxes, uh, but it, it carbon pricing can be done in ways that are not uh, bad for the economy. Like uh, in Canada, the federal carbon tax is fully refunded back to people. So none of it, all of the carbon tax that's collected in a province goes back in that province and most of it in the form of, you know, rebates to the households in that province. So it's not like the money leaves and goes away and gets burned somewhere. The money actually comes back to everybody. But the incentive to reduce carbon uh, exists because of the extra price on carbon. So that's, that's, it's a smart policy. It's one that is increasingly being adopted globally. I think um, you mentioned Biden earlier. Like, I think we're expecting uh, uh, America to move forward with that. Certainly, Europe's moving forward with that. Uh, and in fact, they're moving forward in ways where they may start to put tariffs on goods coming from countries that don't have carbon pricing. So, I think I think we Canada's needs to continue with its carbon pricing agenda and. Uh, and uh, you know we're 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 gonna it's gonna benefit us by helping us adjust our economy in ways to uh, be ready for a lower carbon future. Right. We see so many people that are trying to create um, a conflict between the you know the the, the carbon uh, reducing carbon and business prosperity. But you're painting a picture where. This is a, a a good bet for business for for prosperity in general going forward. You are chair of something called Canadians for Clean Prosperity. So tell me just a little bit about that and and, and why you're involved in it. Yeah, so it's a it's a not for profit that basically advocates for uh, increasing carbon pricing and um, and doing it in smart ways and and ways that are you know least disruptive to the economy, but most. Uh, you know, longer term preparing the Canadian economy for the future. And so, yeah, it's, it's very important to me um, that this particular policy, partly because it's so initially unpopular and there's a knee-jerk reaction that it's bad, uh, it's hard to do politically. So, you know, just felt important to me to be part of an organization that's advocating for, uh, you know, a policy that actually is, you know, it's the, if you ask economists, uh, you know, what's the number one policy that we need to 
to um, reduce our emissions long term, it's putting a price on them. Um, and so even though that's sort of good economic policy, it's not necessarily the first thing governments want to do. Uh, and so, you know, having a group that just focuses solely on that policy, while not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, uh, the kind of thing everybody wakes up thinking about, um, it, it's, it's, I think, really important. So I was pleased to help support, start that group and chair that group. And, uh, and, and, you know, your listeners can go to the Canadians for Clean Prosperity website. It's called cleanprosperity.ca and, and learn more about, uh, uh, the specific policies and and uh, and why they why they make sense, right? I I I haven't had a lot of substantive conversations with people about carbon pricing. I think it's something that uh, most people are still struggling to understand. Can you give me a one sentence soundbite that says why should we be behind uh, the, the 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 price on carbon model? Well, it's it's should do the as I said, the bulk of the heavy lifting of shifting our economy to uh, lower carbon. As you said earlier, there's a little bug in the code. <laughs> the bug in the code of our economy is that, you know, if if carbon emissions are free, that we're going to do a lot of them because it, it it it's you know it's it's hydrocarbons are a fantastic fuel source. Um, so if it's sort of if the side effect of long-term global warming is free. It's a, it's a bug in the system. We need to price that so that uh, we can reduce it over time. Uh, and uh, and it just changes the incentives through the entire system. The billions of transactions that happen every day in Canada uh, all start to shift slightly every month, every year towards less carbon as the carbon price goes up. And it, as we talked about earlier, it creates those economic opportunities for entrepreneurs and businesses uh, and and homeowners to f- not pay a carbon price by reducing their carbon emissions by whether it's you know shifting to a more fuel efficient car the next time you sh- buy a car or you know deciding to you know insulate a home better even new homes should be you know might not pay extra to have them better insulated so you're you're going to use less natural gas or certainly if you're in the any kind of heavy industry or manufacturing, there's lots of opportunities to use less natural gas, less hydrocarbons. Um, but without an incentive, there's actually an incentive not to do it. So um, it provides that incentive throughout the entire system. I recently heard David Suzuki, who's like practically our, our Canada's chief scientist, uh, saying that he's a pessimist about the future of the environment and 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 and. and our lifestyle, our, our standard of living in Canada due to our inability to confront climate change. Are you an optimist, pessimist, uh, somewhere in the middle? Uh, I'm an optimist. I, uh, <laughs> I differ with David Suzuki on this. Uh, I think that uh, I can imagine like a, a, a wonderful 2050, a net zero world in 2050 that, uh, you know, is just as prosperous and wonderful as the one we all want. Uh, it's not one where we're deprived of things, but it's just the energy systems have transitioned to uh, one where we're not emitting carbon into the atmosphere. But uh, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, solar is the cheapest way of making electricity today. We need to combine that with systems of storage and transportation and other 
you know, change where we use fossil fuels. Uh, uh, and we're probably going to need to do some kind of negative emission technologies sort of in the 2040s to until 2050, where we're pulling carbon out of the air and, and storing it underground. All of these things I can, I can see technically being feasible um, uh, with the right policies will direct our economy in that direction and we can achieve it. And uh, there doesn't, it, we don't have to, we can continue to look forward to, uh, you know, increasing prosperity, I think, uh, in the future. So it seems the difference between the optimist and the pessimist is that the optimist is trying to use actual powerful economic tools to accelerate the transition. And, and that's, that, and that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, I think, I mean, we have to see it, it, you know, the economy is how everything happens. And, uh, uh, by fixing this little bug in the economy, um, I think we can, we can have big changes over 30 years. Greg Kiesling, this has been a mind-blowing conversation from finding all these parallels between the software revolution of the 90s to uh, the, the keys to, 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 to climate change today and finding these bug killers and making it a huge opportunity. Um, it's been an interesting conversation. I love your idea about fun at work. Um, I think people should really consider the economics behind your model of overpaying uh, top performers to get stuff done better, faster, and more effectively. Um, I love the idea of parallel futures that entrepreneurs should be looking at different outcomes and preparing for each of them rather than, you know, uh, just having their mindset on one. And the whole idea of the, of the, the, the clean tech future is being something, an opportunity that is really just starting to be recognized and will accelerate as uh, carbon prices adjust is very powerful. Do you have one more simple, fun takeaway for people to that they, a, a, an idea or tip that they could put into uh, uh, their business right away? Oh, I don't know. Maybe just uh, think about how you can uh, be ahead of your competitors in reducing carbon. I think that'll, that'll think about that because probably that'll help you. That's fantastic. It's very simple and very specific. So uh, let, 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 let's all vow to do that for 2021. Greg Kiesling, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation, and I look forward to checking in uh, with, with you again to find out more about uh, InMotive and the other projects you're involved with and, 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 and seeing how we're all adapting to this better future that you're seeing. Thanks so much. Yeah, well, thank you, Rick. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Appreciate it. We'll talk again. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.